This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 251, Unusual. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Whether you're talking about the Bible, the bookstore, the music you hear, the games you play, it can get pretty strange out there. But sometimes the strange parts are the most interesting parts. Today we'll discuss perhaps the most disgusting chapter in Israelite history, and that's saying something. The oddest bookstore in the world and its piece of work proprietor, the world's most maligned musical instrument, and the piles of fecal matter being left on my game table of late. And no, that's not a euphemism. We'll start with what I've been preaching. When you're talking about a book containing multiple stories of people coming back from the dead, at least two talking animals, and an all-loving God commanding his favorite person to kill his own son, finding the strangest story of all is a tall order. But I finally settled on a narrative found in Judges 19-21. through If you haven't read Judges since your grade school Bible class days, you likely haven't heard this one. The story goes that a man from the tribe of Levi was traveling with his concubine. She left him and went back to her father's house. He chased her down, won her over, and took her back home. They got started late and wound up in Jerusalem, which at that time was still controlled by the Jebusites. The man was unwilling to stay the night in a foreign town, and so he insisted they go on to Gibeah, which is in Benjamin. They arrived and were ready to spend the night in the town square when an old man found them and persuaded them to stay the night at his house. That night, men from town, Israelite men that is, came to the house intent on sexually abusing the man. The host was horrified. He offered his own virgin daughter as a preferred alternative. Eventually, the traveler threw his concubine out to the men. The men did the terrible things that terrible men do, and the woman died. The man cut his concubine's dead body into 12 pieces and sent them out to the different tribes, rallying support in his crusade against the men of Gibeah. The other Benjamites rallied to the cause of Gibeah, and waged war against the other 11 tribes. Thousands died for this horrific cause, and eventually the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely obliterated. The other tribes vowed never to allow their women to marry any Benjamite who may have survived. Finally, cooler heads prevailed, sort of. Instead of destroying an entire tribe, they found a town that had not yet joined the battle against Benjamin, killed all their men, stole their women, and handed them off to the Benjamites in the worst series of blind dates in human history. Where to begin? Where to begin? Well, let's begin where the story begins. Chapter 18 starts with, In those days when there was no king in Israel. Then chapter 21, and the book as a whole, ends similarly. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. That's what my friends on the Text Talk podcast, Edwin Crozier and Andrew Roberts, would call an inclusio. It's a poetic device that sort of serves the purpose of bookends. Everything between the two edge statements is about the edge statements. So basically, the editor of Judges is saying the chaos that fills these three chapters is because Israel had no king, or more precisely, that the people made up their own rules instead of accepting a central source of authority. This, no doubt, is why Samuel often gets the credit for putting the book of Judges together. Samuel, the last of the judges, although he does not appear in the book of Judges, had the great task of ushering the nation of Israel into the age of kings. If a king was given proper deference by the people, and if that king took his lead from God and his prophets, 
God would be able to do great things with the nation. And when that happened, he did. But despite Samuel's best efforts, Saul proved to be a disappointment. David and Solomon did somewhat better, although each of them had serious setbacks of faith. And then the kingdom fell completely apart in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But it was always about authority. People left to rule themselves wind up destroying themselves. That's true whether you're talking about Israel of old or teenagers left home alone for the weekend. There are exceptions, certainly. Our girls tended to do very well on their own. Although you might ask Kylie about two car-related incidents in three days a few years ago. Generally, though, we need guidance. Doing what is right in our own eyes is a recipe for disaster. Then there's the business of the concubine herself. A concubine, in case you didn't know, is a woman serving the purpose of a wife without the legal status or protection of a wife. Why did the Levite have a concubine at all? Why did her father consent to this relationship? It's difficult to say, other than that it was what people thought was appropriate at the time, and that was their only governing principle. And I could make application here regarding God's rules for marriage and why people in our day think they know better. I could point out that the Israelites, some of them anyway, had come to look exactly like the Sodomites that God destroyed back in Abraham's day, and caution you as a Christian to take your moral lead from God and not your culture. But this segment's already too long, so I'll just sum up with this. You have a king. His name is Jesus. Your life will be better, short-term and long-term, if you will accept his rule for your life, your whole life. When what seems right to you contradicts his word, you are wrong and he is right, every time. Stick to that rule of thumb, and God will accomplish great things in you. Go your own way and take your chances. This is what I've been reading. When I get a book recommendation, especially from someone I know and respect, someone who knows books, I'm likely to read it. And if I have to chase it all over the world, scouring used bookstores and websites for months and months, it only makes me more determined. Clearly, no one wants to let go of this book. Therefore, I must have it. And when I finally found just such a book, the bookstore that floated away by Sarah Henshaw, I felt like I'd climb Mount Everest and lived a yodel about it. It shot to the top of a very large stack of books to be read, and in a day or two, it was off the stack and in my hand. A day later, it was on the discard heap, along with my hopes and dreams. The bookstore that floated away is Miss Henshaw's story of how she bought a used narrowboat, turned it into a portable bookstore, and floated it all around Great Britain. It was a terrible idea. You can tell it was a terrible idea because Ms. Henshaw continually tells you how terrible an idea it was. She has no regrets, mind you. She just likes the idea of doing whatever she wants to do and whining about not getting the results to which she thinks she's entitled. Part of the book is written by the book barge itself, which is named Joseph. Believe me, I'm not making any of this up. Joseph talks extensively about how his mistress doesn't know what she's doing, leaves him in disrepair, has no business skills at all, etc. Obviously, I don't know Sarah Henshaw, but I don't know Vladimir Putin either, or Ted Kaczynski, or Jojo Siwa. I don't have to. The facts about her are very much in evidence. She wrote an entire book to explain exactly what kind of person she is. The book barge is, believe it or not, still afloat, as far as I can tell. If you find yourself in Paris, where she is now docked, you can book it, pun intended, for your next birthday or Earth Day celebration. Me, I wouldn't cross the street, let alone the Atlantic Ocean. 
And it's not because I don't see the kitschy appeal of a bookstore on a boat. It's completely and totally because of Ms. Henshaw herself. In the book, Ms. Henshaw comes across somehow as both supremely independent and supremely needy. She takes great pride in being able to pilot the boat on her own, and then bristles at the chastening of an actual female boat operator who points out that she is not, in fact, doing it on her own. She's doing it by compelling total strangers to do parts of the work for her, or else stand idly by while she takes four hours to do a task that she and a partner could do in ten minutes. By the way, she responds to this woman's very valid criticism by putting on a shorter skirt, shamelessly flirting with the woman's husband, and getting him to help her. She is, in short, a terrible human being. She knows it. She brags about it. She has no intention of changing. The title of the book is taken from an incident when she got drunk and forgot to tie the boat up on the dock. After a bit of hangover panic, she found the boat just sitting out there in the middle of the river, completely inaccessible until some random current of chance brought it back closer to shore. That's Ms. Henshaw's life plan and business plan in a nutshell. Do what you want, hope it works out, and ask for help when it invariably doesn't. I've known people like Sarah Henshaw in my life. Invariably, they think of themselves as free-spirited, unfettered by the constraints of the expectations of others. I think of them as jerks, completely self-involved, indifferent to the needs, wants, and preferences of others, except as they can be exploited for the jerk's own personal benefit. And to be honest, there have been times in my life that not only would I have crossed the ocean to tell them so, I'd have swum the ocean to tell them so. Okay, that's obviously an exaggeration. I'm a terrible swimmer. But you get the point. I would break check the tailgater. I would harumph at the person who cut in front of me in line. But I'm over it now. I prefer to do what Paul advises in 1 Timothy 2.2. Make it my ambition to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Persisting in my delusion that I might be able to ride the ship, pardon the expression again, for Miss Henshaw and her ilk will only anger her and frustrate me. When I ignore the situation, though, the jerks usually just float away on their own accord. Sorry, I just can't help with the metaphors today. Jesus says in Matthew 6.34, each day has enough trouble of its own. You likely can't do anything to make the amount of frustration and irritation go down on a typical day in Satan's world. But you can certainly do plenty to keep it from going up. I'd advise you to do so. This is what I've been hearing. Say what you like about bagpipe music. There is no other instrument that is better at setting a mood or creating picture in your mind. Now, some people hate bagpipes to the extent that their mood is complete hysteria and the picture is of yourself in a lunatic asylum. But I'm willing to bet, and I'm wagering my retention statistics on it, that you're like me that you can tolerate 15 seconds of pretty much anything as long as it even vaguely qualifies as music. And if so, you probably pictured rolling hills, rocky crags, perhaps a man alone with his instrument decked out in full Scottish regalia. Or maybe you attended the funeral of a police officer or a firefighter or saw one in a movie or TV show. Either way, you hear bagpipes and your mind is whisked away to a particular scene, a particular feeling. Maybe one song does that for you. Perhaps your school's alma mater, or a song that was played at your wedding. For me, Victory in Jesus and In Christ Alone will always make me think of my father, having sung them at his funeral this year. We didn't sing the songs accompanied by bagpipes, or any other instrument, in case you were wondering. I wonder if bagpipe music is so evocative simply because it's so different. The bagpipe is a wind instrument, of course, like a flute or a saxophone. 
but there are only finger holes on one or sometimes two of the pipes emanating from the bag. Those are called chanters. Finger work on the holes of the chanter is used to play the melody, like you used to do on the recorder back in elementary school, if you're old enough to remember music education. The other tube or tubes on the bagpipe are called drones, and they make a single tone without variation, which provides harmony and gives the bagpipe that unique single chord sound. The piece that goes in the mouth, called the blowpipe or blow stick, does nothing but inflate the bag and keep it inflated. When you squeeze the bag underneath your arm, the air passes through the reeds in the various pipes and makes various sounds. You can't really change keys or even chords while playing bagpipes and singing along when you play borders on impossible. That's why you probably think all bagpipe music sounds alike, because it does, far more than orchestral music, piano music, or any other kind of music. The limitations built into the instrument restrict the variety in the music. So no matter what particular tune is being played on the bagpipe, it creates the same mood and evokes the same memories and images. I suppose four-part acapella harmony works the same way. You like quartets singing or you don't? Personally, I think barbershop quartets are a hoot, especially the ones that play for laughs. You hear four men belting out, Hello, my baby, or Goodbye, my Coney Island baby, or whatever other song in the 1920s had baby in the title. And you start thinking about small-town America, stopping at the drugstore to get a strawberry phosphate, paying a dime for a double-dip ice cream cone at the county fair. Or maybe just the night your parents forced you to watch The Music Man, starring Robert Preston, Shirley Jones, and an adorable four-year-old Ronnie Howard, long before Happy Days or even The Andy Griffith Show. 76 Trombones, The Wells Fargo Wagon. It's terrific, with a capital T that rhymes with P. You know what? Never mind. I'm off the subject. The point is, singing harmoniously in close quarters with people you know and who are invested with you in a common cause, that creates an environment as well. And if the common cause is the gospel of Jesus instead of the good old days, so much the more. And again, like bagpipes, it tends to be a if-you-know-you-know sort of thing. Outsiders who care little for the old rugged cross, and even less for any song that might venerate it, will likely turn up their noses at the combined efforts of sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses, regardless of the quality of the song or the singers. They all sound the same, and it's terrible. But for those who are part of the culture... It almost doesn't matter which songs in particular are being sung. They all sound the same, and it's marvelous. You might disagree with me which hymn is more instructive or more rooted in the text or more inspiring, and that's a worthy discussion to have. But in the end, you're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Truly, as we read in Psalm 147.1, Hallelujah, how good it is to sing to our God, for praise is pleasant and lovely. And if the uninitiated choose to mock what they don't understand, that shouldn't lessen your enthusiasm in the least. This is what I've been playing. I asked Kylie the other day what she thought our most unusual game was. She quickly responded, hand-to-hand wombat. That's the one I would have picked as well. It's kind of a winner right there from the title, isn't it? For those who don't know, the wombat is not a special kind of bat. If you can imagine a woodchuck with the nose of a pig that climbs trees like a koala, that's basically a wombat. And yes, the stories are true. Their feces comes out cube-shaped. Last I heard, scientists are still working on exactly how that happens. Who knows how much research grant money's gone into that study. Anyway, wombats have little to do with the game at all, beyond the title. The only connection I can see is the game pieces, which are square, and they have little square pieces sticking out the sides. 
You play the game by closing your eyes, then competing with your fellow players to see who can make the best pyramid with the game pieces. Biggest ones on the bottom, getting smaller all the way, ideally, to the top. So I guess if you want to look at it that way, the whole game is about playing with animal excrement. Suddenly I have a pressing need to go wash my hands. There's nothing that isn't absurd about the game. I could point out some more weird bits of business, but you get the idea. In the end, there are people out there who are intrigued with the idea of playing a game called hand-to-hand wombat. And there are people out there who would cut off one of their hands to avoid playing a game called hand-to-hand wombat. You were in one of those groups when I started talking, and I'll wager you're in that same group now. I'll say of hand-to-hand wombat what I say of modern board gaming in general. You either get it or you don't. If I enjoyed the game, which I don't particularly, I could share what I really loved about it or feature an aspect of the game that I found really compelling. And if I did my job well, you might be motivated to give the game a try. And if you did, you might surprise yourself and really take to it. But on the whole, it's a silly experience that extends a silly appeal to people who enjoy silly experiences. And at the risk of making it sound like I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is silly, allow me to make a comparison or two. There is a sense in which the teachings of the master appeal to what you might call the in crowd. He says so himself in so many words in Matthew 13, between his telling of the parable of the sower and the explanation of the parable he gave to those who stuck around long enough to hear it. He says in verses 12 and 13, The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Spiritually minded people will pay heed to a spiritual lesson. When they don't understand it very well, they'll go back for more, hoping to get a clearer picture the next time around. They know they're in the right place, doing the right thing, even if it's a bit odd and disconnected from time to time. It's the confidence that comes from putting your trust in the master teacher. Those people, Jesus says, will see their connection to him and his kingdom grow and blossom. Later in the chapter, he likens it to leaven in a lump of dough. Before long, it'll take over your entire life, changing it forever in profound ways. But plenty of people will opt out and opt out quickly. They identify the gospel for exactly what it is, and they want no part of it. Sure, Christians can con them into playing along for a while, just like I might trick you into playing a game about wombat poop. But you're not an idiot. You'll pick it up, pardon the expression, pretty quickly, and we'll both realize we're wasting our time. The difference, of course, is that whether you choose to play this game or any game is of no real consequence to you, me, or anyone else. The gospel, on the other hand, is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. It couldn't get more consequential than that. So if you're having trouble getting people to engage with the gospel, the time will come to quit casting pearls before swine. But do a lot of persisting and praying before that time comes. Wombats will surprise you from time to time. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the How Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.